Um, we are the last week in a series in the book of James. And so if you have your Bible or your uh, Bible app on your phone, turn to James chapter 4. We're going to be looking at uh, this, uh, the, the latter half of James chapter 4 and then chapter 5. And so as somebody noted to me as they came in today, James is a little challenging, which it is. The truth is James hits some subjects really hard. Very practical, but it, he's hard-hitting. And the reason for that, I think, is that he's dealing with kind of a stiff-necked, uh, you know, uh, hard-headed people <laughs> that he's trying to break through and get through to them and get through to their heart. And so he does. He's very no-nonsense and very direct. And so you may find some of it feel like, man, this is hard. And I just want to encourage you that James' heart is to help break through and some of us are not as hard-hearted and hard-headed, and we can, you know, God can get through to us a little easier. And so don't be discouraged by this. Just take the message and the lesson, respond to it um, in the right way. James was the half-brother of Jesus, so he grew up in the same home as Jesus, which is remarkable to think about. Um, and as he grew older, he definitely recognized Jesus was the Messiah. He was a believer in Jesus and became a leader in the church. And so that's why he's writing this letter. He writes to Jewish uh, Jewish Christians. And so you got to remember in Jesus' time, of course, Jesus came. Uh, he was born as a Jew. He lived inside a Jewish culture. And so um, that was the beginning of the church. The movement of Jesus were, were all Jews initially. And then it began to open up to the Gentile world, which is non-Jewish uh, people like most of us. And so this is how it went. Well, James is writing to uh, individuals who had made the decision to trust Jesus as Messiah, but had grown up under the law. Um, and that's what Judaism was. Moses gave the Ten Commandments, and then from that flowed uh, the law that they had to live by. And so this was what governed their lives, and it's what their religion was made up of for the most part. And so there's a shift in Jesus, uh, a change in how they were living and, and what governed them. See, God has the same standards expectations of us as human beings, the same type of holiness and, and desire for us to live in a way that reflects Him. He's the one that created us. And so that expectation's still there. But we don't live under the law, external law code. We now have, when we put our trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us. And we have the scriptures which help and guide us, teach us as to how we're to live. And so James is going to hit on some very specific life change issues, things we need to be living out our faith, right? But it's not according, it's not as uh, according to the law necessarily, but it's according to the law of grace and the, and the, the spirit of the law that Jesus brought and lived out. And, uh, and it's a law that changes and transforms us. James recognized the same problem in his day that we see in our day at times, and that is that these individuals coming out of living under Judaism lived in a culture that was dominated by that and people that believed that. So they had family and friends and, and co-workers and people that they interacted with that were still Jewish and living under the law. And here they were, people living under the law of grace, following Jesus. And that was not popular, right? And so people uh, were going to look negatively on them for the most part. And so there was a temptation not to live their faith out in their life. And we see that happen in our current culture, right? There are people that are cultural Christians. They would say, sure, I believe in Jesus and, you know, I'm a part of that. But, but you can't tell by looking at their life that they're a follower of Jesus. There's really no outward reflection of that faith. And James hits that really hard in this book, in this letter. He says, listen, if you don't have a faith that someone can look at your life and see something different and see that you're living differently because you belong to God, then that faith is not alive. 
That faith is dead. It, it doesn't have power in your life and doesn't have the power to save you. He doesn't argue that it is works or effort that saves you. He stays in line with the teaching of Jesus, which is that we are saved by grace through faith. Faith alone is what saves us. Put our faith in Jesus, the work that he did on the cross for us, and by putting our our trust in him and our faith in him, we are made right before God. But, uh, But then that faith, which is saving faith, James will argue, is also a faith that is then going to begin to change your life. And you're going to begin to change your behaviors and what you do and what you care about. And your motivations are going to change. Your heart's going to change. And so that's really the essence of the book. Some people uh, today and in his day as well just thought uh, a radical faith is just too much. Living out my faith in a radical way. It might distance me from relationships. People are going to think uh, that I'm one of those weird, crazy Jesus freaks or, you know, Bible thumpers or whatever. And, and that's a negative, right? And so we have that same fear today. We grow up in a community around the same people and the same relationships, and we work with people, and there can be a fear that this is going to hurt those relationships or distance me from people. And that can happen. Truth is, that can happen. There are some people that if they know you're a Christian and you're really serious about it, they're going to go like this to you, and I've certainly experienced that, and you maybe have as well. But I've also found the opposite to be true, and this is what I think uh, I want to remind us of, is that the truth is there are a lot of people looking for somebody that knows God and is following him because there's some hope there and there's some answers there and there's some help there. And I've certainly found in my life there's more people looking for someone who is really serious and committed and living out their faith, even if they may not agree with you and even if they don't necessarily believe what you believe, but they're, they're interested and drawn to that more so than repelled by it. So I encourage you with that, that um, our faith needs to change us. Um, we are justified, as I said, by faith but, uh, and that's part of our salvation, but sanctification is the part where we uh, begin to be changed. So James finishes up this book with, I think, a theme. He talks about a number of issues that we're going to go through today, but there's a theme there. And the theme is that he's focused in on encouraging us to remain humble as we walk with God. And so this series is called Faith in Action, and today is Remain Humble. Stay humble when it comes to your faith. Walk with God in humility. You know, pride is one of those things that creeps up on us. It sneaks up on us. We all have some pride in us. And, you know, sometimes it gets the better of us and it can grow uh, and become a problem. It's been said of pride that pride is the only disease that makes everyone sick but the one who has it. Um, And so, you know, we recognize when somebody else has a pride issue and it's off-putting. And we usually criticize them, at least, you know, uh, when we're uh, by ourselves or with our family, whatever, we'll criticize somebody that's got a pride issue. But what's tough is we can get that pride issue and not recognize it. We can be the one with the problem and really not see it. And so the truth is, oftentimes pride uh, creeps up in us, and usually it's misplaced. There was a young lady uh, who attended church, and she said, Pastor, I need to meet with you. I've got an issue I'd like to talk with you about. And so the pastor said, sure, we can meet. So she came into his office and said, Pastor, there's this issue that I've started to notice in my life. And she goes, when I go to church, I start to look around, and I recognize that I'm just the most beautiful, prettiest woman in the room. And really nobody else can, can really compare with me. And this, I know this is a sin problem. What can I do about it? And the pastor said, oh, that's really not a sin issue. That's more of a mistake. Okay, I'm not going to, I'm not bold enough as a pastor to say something like that to anybody. But, um, and, and I'm not sure that really happened. <laughs> it's an illustration. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Pride can get misplaced. Remaining humble is difficult. 
It just is. Sometimes it's a reaction to what we view as a, a tax or pressure from other people because we certainly face that in our world. Other people kind of try, you know, it's a competitive world and we can get caught in that and pretty soon we're thinking we're better than others just as a reaction so that we can, you know, keep our courage and our strength and keep going. There's all kinds of things that can bring pride to play in our lives. But it is a negative. It is not a good thing. It's not a good character trait, and it doesn't keep us strong in our faith. It doesn't move us towards God. And so I want to encourage you today with some of these things that James is going to hit on. Uh, The first one that James encourages us uh, with in this area of humility is he says this, stay humble by not trying to be the judge of anyone. Stay humble by not trying to be the judge of anyone. Follow along with me as I read James chapter 4, starting in verse 11. uh, Don't speak evil against each other, dear brothers and sisters. If you criticize and judge each other, then you are criticizing and judging God's law. But your job is to obey the law, not to judge whether it applies to you. God alone who gave the law is the judge. He alone has the power to save or to destroy. So what right do you have to judge your neighbor? Now, James isn't talking about evaluating and making a moral decision about right and wrong. One of the things that we see in our culture today is it's okay, and this is, again, just our mainstream culture, it's okay to have certain convictions, right, and speak those out, and it's not okay to have other convictions. And so as Christians today, there are certain topics and issues that you can feel as though you're really not free to hold a position on them, okay? You're not really free, culturally speaking, to think certain things. Hey, this is wrong, right? Or that is right. But I'm going to tell you that that's not the kind of judgment that James is talking about. He's not talking about a moral uh, evaluation of whether or not a practice or a behavior or activity is right or wrong. Those are things we make a decision on based on the scriptures and on the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And those things don't change. God does not move or shift when it comes to a moral issue, a lifestyle issue where he goes, hey, that's wrong. That used to be wrong, but now it's okay. That's not how God works. And so there's a consistency, right? And so we, uh, if we're um, a Christian who believes that the Holy Spirit dwells within us and we believe in the God of the Bible, then there's a consistency. And in certain areas, we're not going to be able to move on whether something's right or wrong, right? But our culture is going to move, and that's always happened. That's typical. And so we're going to have to stand against some of that pressure. But our world today says, don't judge. Who are you to judge somebody else? Well, in that arena, I'm going to make a moral decision, right? I'm going to say, hey, this is what God says. That is wrong. And that's, we're going to have to stand on that. But what James is talking about is a different issue. This is an issue where, in his day, the people he's talking to began to judge each other's salvation, relationship with God, whether or not they were in right standing with God. They began to judge the the character of each other, the heart of each other. And James says, listen, you've gotten a judgmental spirit, a critical spirit that you are trying to stand in the place of God. You are trying to make judgment calls about each other in an arena you have nothing to do with. You have no knowledge, you have no ability to make those judgment calls, and yet you are. And so James says, you need to stop doing that. If you judge your neighbor in that regard, you are breaking the law that you are trying to hold each other to. And so that is really what he's pushing against. I see in that a drive towards remaining humble. It is pride that moves us into a place where we think we're superior of others, and we can judge um, the hearts and the motivations of those around us. And that's a problem. 
Remember that the Jews were all essentially lawyers, right? They followed the law of Moses, they kept the law of Moses, and they were judging each other based on that. Our pride can lead us to extreme places of harshness towards each other. Look, I know the truth is, uh, we're humans and we're adult, you know, whatever, whatever our age is, teenagers, adults, we uh, interact with each other, and typically there's some judgment that goes on, right, in our minds. And so we have an interaction, a public interaction. It's cordial. It's nice. We leave that interaction privately. We criticize. We start to pick apart things that bother us about the person that we just interact with. That happens. Now, I know you don't do that, but maybe the person next to you does. I don't know. But I know some of us struggle with that. Maybe all of us at some level, okay? And, uh, and I think sometimes that private criticism, that agitation where we talk to our spouse about that person, oh, that just drives me nuts when they do, right? We do those things, and we all know those conversations go on. And then it's like uh, sometimes we kind of lose our self-restraint, and that comes out uh, when we're with that person. We get frustrated, and all of a sudden we lash out, and there's conflict. And James is going, listen, remain in a place of humility. You are not God's gift to the world. You are not God. There is a judge and you're not him. So remember that as you walk through life. Remember not to fight against uh, gaining a critical spirit. Here's some things that, that the truth is when we judge others unfairly, we criticize them. There's some things that we need to realize. We sometimes criticize others unfairly. We don't know all of their circumstances, nor their motives, because we cannot see a person's heart. Only God, who is aware of all the facts, is able to judge people righteously. John Wesley who started the Methodist movement. This was a movement that came about, um, came out of the church in England, the Anglican church, John Wesley and his brother, and they came to America. They began to preach to coal miners coming out of the, the coal mines. They began to see people come to Jesus, and they traveled this country 100, over 100,000 miles on horseback, preaching and starting churches, and, um, and, and made a profound impact. But Wesley openly, or excuse me, John Wesley told of a man that he had little respect for because he considered him to be miserly and covetous. One day when this person contributed only a small gift to a worthy charity, Wesley openly criticized him. After the incident, the man went to Wesley privately and told him that he'd been living on parsnips and water for, for several weeks. He explained that before his conversion to Christ, he had run up many bills and a lot of debt. And now by skimping on everything and buying nothing for himself, he was paying off his creditors one by one. Christ has made me an honest man, he said. And so with all these debts to pay, I can give only a few offerings above my tithe. I must settle up with my worldly neighbors and show them what the grace of God can do in the heart of a man who was once dishonest. Wesley promptly apologized to the man and asked, <laughs> asked his forgiveness. Hey, uh, we can do that. We misjudge. We don't know. I'm going to tell you, even we have family members that we judge and we're harsh with and we, we think, man, they messed up and did the wrong thing. And, but we don't know their heart. We don't know their motives. We don't know everything about them. That's why when I do funerals and people ask me, is this person in heaven or not? Do you know? What do you think? You know, here's what their life was like. And I just quickly say, listen, good news. I'm not the judge of where they spend eternity. I don't get to make that decision, and I don't, I don't have to make that decision. I'm thankful for that. And so I can tell you what the Scriptures tell us uh, and teach us about where we need to be with God, but I don't have to decide. And we, we are all in that position, right? Sometimes we're quick to make that, that call based on what we've seen and what we know, but um, God isn't asking us to do that. F.B. Meyer 
once said that when we see a brother or sister in sin, there are two things we do not know. First of all, we don't know how hard he or she tried not to sin. Second, we don't know the power of the forces that assailed him or her. We also do not know what we would have done if we were in their circumstances. It's just a good thing to remember. Sometimes we get a little, uh, we move a little bit on that side, get a little uh, legalistic, a little judgmental, a little bit thinking we can, we know where another person's coming from. We get frustrated when people get stuck in sin patterns and we think, why are they, what's wrong with them, what happened to them? Listen, it's good to step back a minute and with humility, remember that uh, God alone is the one that judges their life. After restraining your judgmental spirit, Next, you need to work to stay humble by not pretending you're in control. Stay humble by not pretending you're in control. Let's continue to read James chapter 4 in verse 13. Look here, you who say today or tomorrow we are going to a certain town and we'll stay there a year. We will do business there and make a profit. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It is here for a little while and then it's gone. What you ought to say is if the Lord wants us to, or if it's the Lord's will, some versions say, we will live and do this or that. Otherwise, you're boasting about your own pretentious plans, and all such boasting is evil. Remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do, and then not to do it. Kind of seems like a little thing, you know. We make plans. <laughs> what am I going to do next week? Sometimes we make business plans. We, make a, we have a dream. We have a goal. We have an objective. A lot of us are wired that way. We live in a capitalistic country, right, where it kind of breeds that, a little competitiveness, and a little desire to grow and build. And we all want to uh, have the resources to, to be able to live out our retirement years. And, and we, we start to do that, right? So we make plans. And in that, James is saying there's a subtle shift that can happen in your heart and mind where you begin to believe that because you have the knowledge, resources, ability to make those plans and maybe carry them out, see them happen, you can begin to pretentiously believe that you're in control of all of it and that it's guaranteed. And that if you set it up and you make the plan, it's going to work. And you begin to live as though you're in complete control of your life. And James says, uh, wrong spot, wrong place to be. Christian, you are not in 100% control of your life, nor should you be driving the vehicle of your life and controlling everything that goes on. He says you need to remember that you live under and submit to the will of God and to his desires and plans for your life. And you should be listening to the Spirit, and you should be saying, hey, if this is God's will, this is what I'm planning on doing. But I'm looking for God's will. I'm seeking his direction, his input in my life. It's not just me steering the ship of my life. Don't allow your pride to fuel your ambitions. Let humility before God lead you as you set out to accomplish your plans. Walk in step with the Spirit. Allow God to guide you and stay humble enough to listen to his directions. There was a story of a pilot who got his license and he was flying one day and he wasn't good yet at instrument control, following and navigating the instrument by the instruments. And so he uh, hit a little bit of um, some weather, some clouds, and he was uh, headed in for a landing. He started to panic because he didn't know how to navigate it. All of a sudden he heard over the radio a stern voice that said this, J- you just obey instructions. We'll take care of the obstructions. You just follow instructions. Just listen to what we're telling you and do it, and you'll be fine. 
God is saying that to us. And to some of us, he, he's wanting to say it to us right now. Hey, listen, uh, you're, you've taken hold of the wheel and you're trying to make it happen. You have your plans and your ambitions and your goals and you're fighting for them and you're driving towards them. And uh, if they don't happen, here's a good clue. If they don't happen, they're not going the way you want. You start to panic, lose sleep, get anxious. That's a good indication that you're trying to control everything. And God wants to say to us, hey, listen, <laughs> I'm up here over your life. You belong to me and I'm leading and guiding you and directing you. Slow down a minute. Ask me for direction, trust me, and just remember to say that small thing. Hey, listen, this is where I'm headed. This is what I want to accomplish. If it's God's will, then that's what I'll do. It's huge. Makes a big difference in our lives, in our attitudes. A little bit of humility. Walk in step with the Spirit. Well, Jesus told us to place our faith in God and His provision, not in the wealth of this world. So, you must stay humble by not placing your faith in your money. James, this one's kind of tough. He goes after people that are wealthy, and in his world, there was some difficulty there. Those that had a lot in the Jewish culture that he was writing to really banked on it, and their, their attitudes and their faith was off base. And so, again, this is, this is kind of a rough section, um, but, but we got to read it. It's God's Word, and it has something for us to learn. So James chapter 5 now, starting in verse 1. Follow along as I read. Look here, you rich people. We weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. Your wealth is rotting away and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. This corroded treasure you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. For listen, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated of their pay. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. You have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You have fattened yourself for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed innocent people who do not resist you. Again, James is going after a hard-hearted uh, hard-hearted individuals who walk in a certain way in his world. But we can learn from this. A couple of things we can take from this is that wealth does not get you ahead in the church of Jesus, in the movement of God. Wealth does not add to your position. It doesn't give you any preference points, okay? The rest of our culture, it does, but inside the church, it does not. And, and here's the truth of it. Think about this for a minute. God is not impressed whether you have a lot or a little, right? Does that affect his view of you at all? Do you think he's impressed if you have a lot? Maybe more than most of the people you know? Do you think that impresses God who made all of this, who spoke it into creation, <laughs> who, who owns the cattle on a thousand? Everything really belongs to him. And so the reality is, no, he's not impressed by it. It doesn't change his view of you in any way. And that can be good. It can be comforting. It can also be a little bit of struggle if our pride and our hearts has begun to identify ourselves with what we have. Wealth is not meant to do that. Listen, I've known people in my life who had a lot of stuff, and the truth is they had a lot of stuff because they were good at, at building the businesses, making money. They could make things work. It was just a talent, a skill that they had, and uh, they had the right makeup and the right personality and the right drive and all that to just be able to do it, and they had fun at it and enjoyed it. It wasn't like they were addicted to stuff or saw themselves as being, you know, more important because of that stuff. They just were good at it. And so they did it. Their attitude towards themselves, standing before God, was very healthy and right. Uh, they didn't see it as an advantage towards them or that it would give them any, uh, you know, advantage inside the church. And so just something they were able to do. And so they enjoyed it. And I'm like, hey, that's great. There's nothing against that in Scripture. It's not like wealth alone is a bad thing. 
It is not. Some of us have bad attitudes towards people that have a lot of stuff, and we get kind of disgruntled and have an attitude towards them. That's not right. Listen, you can walk with God and have things. James is hitting on the heart. He's saying, don't put your faith in that stuff. It's rotting away. It's not going to last forever. We know we have the Egyptian pyramids to prove that you don't get take anything with you, right? It's all still there, or it's all been stolen by somebody, but it didn't go to the other side. Now, and so it's important to remember that sometimes and to, to realize that, hey, where do you stand? Have you started to put your faith in your money? Listen, I've been there. I've done that. I've started to put, you know, get a little older, start thinking about retirement, put my faith in those retirement accounts or whatever it is, or, or whether or not I'm, I feel secure, how much money's in the bank. And the truth is that's wrong. It's sin. We're not to walk that way through life. God is the one who provides for us. The, the name on your paycheck is not the source of your income. It's God. And as Christians, as followers of Jesus, that's how we're supposed to walk. Remain humble when it comes to our lives. Paul, the apostle, taught Timothy, a young pastor, how to teach those uh, how to handle wealth. He said this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. He's acknowledging, listen, uh, things are fun, and it's great to have stuff. Nothing wrong with that. Just keep your faith and your trust in God. Don't allow it to go to your head. I've known people, Christian leaders, right? I've watched this or, or known Christian leaders, um, people that were in charge in positions of importance that it went to their head. And it started to affect how they viewed themselves and others. And pride uh, trickled in and it began to give a negative uh, effect on their lives. And they began to treat others poorly. And it's just important to remember, if we have a position of authority and influence, if we have a lot of stuff and it elevates us in our culture, we have a greater responsibility to honor God with our lives and to reflect uh, well on Jesus, our Savior, and not to make it look bad. There are people that refuse to engage Christianity because of the lifestyle of a leader, a person who claims to be a Christian, right? They're like, I'm not gonna have anything to do with that. That can't be good. And that's sad. That's actually really bad. We should not be living our lives in such a way that that could happen. And so James is just saying, get your perspective right on your stuff. Make sure you handle your position and your wealth with integrity. I think one of the things that uh, keeps us on track is the teaching of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus was talking to the Jewish crowd again that he was preaching to, and he said, he said something like this. Don't worry about what you're going to eat tomorrow, where you're going to live, what kind of clothes you're going to wear. He said the pagans worry about that stuff. They're always talking about that. Uh, am I wearing the right clothes? Am I driving the right car? Am I? They get all consumed with that stuff. He said, don't do it. Trust God. He's going to provide for you. He said, look at the flowers out in the field. Look at the birds. They have plenty to eat. They're taken care of. The flowers grow. They're beautiful. People can't get as beautiful as those flowers. Listen, God created a world to sustain life, and it works. Sure, there's times it breaks down. Sure, there's times. But in general, it works. So don't worry about that stuff. It's not going to do anything you worry about it anyway. Then he says in Matthew 6, verse 33, this, which is very, very important and a key to keeping us on track. He says this, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. Listen, as followers of Jesus, those that claim to know God, we're to walk in such a way that we're pursuing the advancement and the growth of what God wants to do in the world. A question you could ask is this, what can I do with the resources, the opportunities, the position, the influence that I've been given to push God's work forward? 
what is it that I could do with that opportunity? See, all you get, really all you get with life is opportunities. And wealth can give you opportunities that you wouldn't have if you didn't have it. Um, Sometimes you get in a position of influence. Remember when I first got here, we did a series called Be the Message. And it was all about living in such a way in the world that others could see Jesus in and through our lives and that we could reach out to others. Um, Yesterday, I got to do something I hadn't done in a while. I got to go to a branding and, uh, and get a little, you know, cow manure on my backside, right? Um, we held down uh, the calves. It was great. Had a good time. Um, didn't get kicked and didn't get branded. Um, didn't get shot. So it was good. But, uh, but it just reminded me while I was there that the things we do, Gene Brader, uh, it was his, uh, his place. And so this is his life. It's what he does, he does for a living. And I just was reminded of our series, Be the Message. Because we talked about where you work, where you live, where you play. Those are areas where you can have an influence and make an impact and reach out to others. And it doesn't have to be in a big way. And I thought Gene did a great job of that. And I got an opportunity to talk to some people. And, and those conversations just come up. They have when we're living our lives. And so that's the encouragement, is not to uh, go through this life uh, ignorant and, and unaware of how God is trying to use you. Be aware of it. Use those opportunities in, in places, not to uh, preach at people, not to be heavy-handed, not to be hard, but just simply to reflect God through how you do things. How can, you, how can your life help point people to God? So often we want everything to go smoothly in our lives. No struggles, no breakdowns in our vehicles, no problems, no stress. We want everything to go smooth. Um, and that's why we need to work to stay humble by developing patience and endurance in our lives. Patience and endurance. James is going to hit on patience and endurance. Um, in James chapter 5, continuing there, starting verse 7, this is what he says. Dear brothers and sisters, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Consider the farmers who wait patiently or who patiently wait for the rains to fall and in the spring, um, or who wait patiently for the rains in the fall and in the spring. They eagerly look for the valuable harvest to ripen. You too must be patient. Take courage for the coming of the Lord is near. Don't grumble about each other, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. For look, the judge is standing at the door. For example, for examples of patience in suffering, dear brothers and sisters, look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We give great honor to those who endured under suffering. For instance, you know about Job, a man of great endurance. You can see how the Lord was kind to him at the end. For the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. But most of all, my brothers and sisters, never take an oath by heaven or earth or anything else. Just say a simple yes or no so that you will not sin and be condemned. So, I think James here is, is pushing in the direction of patience and endurance. He's saying, listen, you need to build this into your life. Patience leads to a life of peace. Lack of patience leads to conflict, right? And typically, we have issues in our life with people, with things, with what we're trying to accomplish. A lot of times it's based around what we're trying to do to make a living or the people that we have to interact with, either in that arena or other arenas. That's where our patience is tested. And the truth is, James is saying, listen, I want you to live a peaceful life. God doesn't want you to be stressed out all the time uh, with people or things or situations. He wants you to be able to walk in peace, right? So build this into your life. Work at it. In the first chapter of James, he says, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds because you're being tested. That's how you build your faith muscles is you get tested. You have problems. Now, fortunately, I don't know about you, but 
I don't have any problem finding problems in my life. I get up, drink a cup of coffee, and bam, there they are. Like they just appear, right? All over the place. I don't know about you. Maybe you don't have that. Maybe, uh, maybe your life is just smooth and problem-free, but mine is not. And so uh, with those problems, I can get frustrated. I can get uh, upset. I can get frustrated at the person, the situation, want it to go away. Man, things are just get, I get so much more done if I don't have problems. And that's true, except for the fact that I'm walking with God, and I say I follow Jesus, and I'm trying to follow him. And the truth is, if that's the case, then problems and difficulties and obstacles become an opportunity for me to grow. And that's the purpose of them. And I won't get where I need to go without those things. And so let's work to develop patience. Patience is so hard, so frustrating. Patience is a virtue. Catch it if you can. Seldom found in women and never found in men. Yeah, uh, It's tough. It's tough. I'm not a naturally patient person, but God wants me to be. Don't grumble about others, James says. It comes when we're not patient. Work to endure trials graciously, he says. Doesn't happen if I'm not patient. Don't swear by anything. Don't speak rashly. Don't try to build your case by saying, oh, I swear I'm going to do that. Just say yes or no. Just stay calm. (laughs) Live your life honestly with integrity. The times we get out of whack and we don't do what we say we're going to do is when we're stressed out, we're under pressure, and we're trying to do things in our own flesh. True patience, Chuck Chuck Swindoll said this, true patience is waiting without worrying. Try that. It's easy to say you're patient, but are you worrying about the situation? Are you worrying, are you going in your mind about how how it's going to work out, how it's going to get resolved? It's rewarding to watch our gardens grow. Got a garden this year, and it's a lot of fun watching it grow. The weeds, of course, grow too, so you got that battle, but it's good. And so here's some gardening tips for you and your life. These are really quality tips. First of all, plant three rows of squash. Squash gossip, squash criticism, squash indifference. Next, plant three rows of peas. Purity, patience, perseverance. Plant six rows of lettuce. Let us be unselfish and loyal. Let us be faithful to duty. Let us search the scriptures. Let us not be weary in well-doing. And let us be, be obedient in all things. And finally, let us love one another. And no garden is complete without turn-ups. Turn-up for church, for prayer service, for Bible study, those investments in your life. Turn-up with a smile, even when things are difficult. Turn-up with determination to do your best for God's cause. Hebrews 12, verse 1, the writer of Hebrews talk to a, talks to us about endurance, and this is what he, he says. Since, uh, therefore, since we are surrounded by a hu- such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. George Matheson, um, he was a, a preacher, an evangelist um, back in the 1800s, and he was actually born uh, visually impaired, wasn't able to see, has a really powerful comment to this issue of patience and endurance. He says this, we commonly associate patience with lying down. I'm going to be patient, I need to lay down and be quiet and just wait. We think of it as the angel that guards the couch of the invalid person that can't do anything. Yet there is a patience that I believe to be harder. That patience, or excuse me, the patience that can run. To lie down in a time of grief, to be quiet under the stroke of uh, adverse uh, fortune, implies a great strength 
But I know something that implies a strength greater still. It is the power to work under stress, to have great weight at your heart and still run forward, to have a deep anguish in your spirit and still perform the daily tasks. It is, Christ, it is a Christ-like thing. The hardest thing that most of us are called to exercise, or the hardest thing is this, that most of us are called to exercise our patience, not on the sickbed, but in the street. To wait is hard, but to do it with courage is harder. Walking in the flow of life, dealing with the pressures of your job, the demands of of, uh, your spouse, of your kids, living in the flow of life and working patience out. Now that's tough. That's really hard. Doing it when you're shut down and there's a virus that makes you stay home. Okay, that's kind of tough. I mean, there's some issues with that, but man, that's a lot easier. And some of us are a little reluctant to step out of that easier spot to be patients back into the fire, right? And yet the truth is that that's where God has us. And eventually at some point, we're all gonna have to be back there. But, But that's the tough part, to be patient and to develop endurance in the flow of a difficult life. Always remember that prayer is your number one weapon against the struggles in life. So stay humble by praying more. James chapter five, carrying on in this, passage, uh, in this chapter, starting in verse 13. He says this, are any of you suffering hardships? You should pray. Are any of you happy? You should sing praises. Are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick and the Lord will make you well. And if you have committed any sins, you will be forgiven. Verse 16, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Elijah was as human as we are, and yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. Then when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain and the earth began to yield its crops. James is saying this, you have access to God. Your prayers are powerful. Powerful prayers do not come from an important, powerful person, okay? Having a, a status or being in a position of importance in the church or outside, whatever, does not make our prayers powerful. What makes prayer powerful is when it's prayed by the person that believes, that trusts God. And God hears the prayers that all of us pray. Sometimes the prayers of children are the most powerful. Dr. Helen Rosevera a missionary to Zaire told the following story. She worked in a mission station, and there was a mother who gave birth to a premature baby, died in childbirth. Um, and so they uh, incurred this situation with a preemie baby in a, in a third world country, in a, in a difficult situation. So they tried to improvise an incubator to keep the baby warm so that it could stay alive. But they couldn't do it. The only thing they had was a hot water bottle, and the hot water bottle had a hole in it, right? It wasn't going to work. And so they were in a tough situation trying to save this baby's life. And so she says this, we asked the children to pray for the baby and for her sister. One of the girls responded this way, dear God, Please send a hot water bottle today. Tomorrow will be, will be too late because the baby, then the baby, will have passed. And dear Lord, send a doll for her sister so she won't feel lonely. That afternoon, a large package arrived from England. The children watched eagerly as we opened it. Much to their surprise, under some clothing was a hot water bottle. Immediately, the girl, who had prayed so earnestly, started to dig deeper, exclaiming, if God sent that, 
I'm sure he also sent a doll. And she was right. The Heavenly Father knew in advance of this child's sincere request. So five months earlier, when he had a group of ladies in a church pack the package, he made sure to include those items. Your prayers are powerful when you pray. God hears our prayers. Do not ever believe the lie from the enemy that says God isn't listening. Not sure he's hearing you. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he doesn't care about you. Maybe he's not aware of your situation. See, those are lies from the enemy. The truth is that we have a heavenly father that loves us deeply. Read Psalm 139 if you want to know how much God knows about you. He knows everything about you more than you know about yourself. He's intimately aware of your situation and your life. He is not your enemy seeking to destroy you. He actually is trying to get your attention and draw you into a relationship with him. And sometimes, you know this, we say, I've lived a long time, I prayed prayers that didn't get answered. And I would say to you, that is false. Your prayers all get answered. They just don't all get answered the way you want them to. And oftentimes we mistakenly think then that God didn't answer them. But the truth is, he did. And we, we live under and submit to, again, his authority and his rule. And we stay humble in that, remembering that God loves us. Pray, pray, pray more. Should be the first thing we do. Should be the last thing we do. Should be the thing we do all the way through. Pray more. One thing that keeps us humble and reminds us that our lives lived for God are purely because of his grace is to stay humble by helping bring people back to God. James hits this as he ends his book, his letter. He says this in verse 19 of chapter 5. My dear brothers and sisters, if someone among you uh, wanders away from the truth and is brought back, you can be sure that whoever brings that sinner back from wandering will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. Can I encourage you with this, that God, our God, is a God of second chances, third chances, fourth chances. Really, he doesn't quit giving chances. That's the God we serve. He loves you, he loves the people in your life that have uh, walked away, who have strayed, who've maybe rebelled against you, maybe they don't like you anymore, and maybe you've been tempted, or maybe you have given up on them. Can I just remind you that that's not what our God does? He doesn't give up on us, and he doesn't give up on anyone. He loves this world, he sacrificed himself for this world, and he wants each and every person in this world to be connected to him. And so I'm prayerful that today, you might take up the challenge to help bring somebody back to God. Maybe somebody that you know and you've been watching their life and you've seen it and they've sort of strayed away. Maybe they've got discouraged. Maybe they've walked into a sin issue and pattern and they're stuck in an addiction. I don't know. But maybe God would stir in your heart to try again, to be the person that extends a second chance. There's a story about Thomas Edison who, of course, invented the crazy contraption called the light bulb. And uh, he did this with a great deal of effort, took a group of men 24 straight hours to get the first light bulb uh, put together. They got it put together. They were all exhausted. He gave it to a young man to carry it up the stairs uh, to put it in a safe place. And, of course, the young man, as he got to the top of the stairs, dropped the light bulb and it shattered on the stairs. Now, that was disappointing, I'm sure, to everybody. I'm sure a little bit of frustration was expressed there. But they got back to work, worked another 24 hours, made another light bulb. And Edison did something kind of remarkable. The story goes that he gave that light bulb, the second one, to the same young man for a second chance. Listen, um, will you be a part of, instead of discarding people, 
instead of saying, hey, uh, God's done with them, I'm done with them, I don't want anything more to do with them, would you be a part of helping to extend grace again? Put down our pride that makes us do that and stay humble toward others, remembering that there but for the grace of God go I, that it could be me in their position, and instead of making a judgment call and casting them aside to continue to love, continue to reach out to show grace. And I'm just praying that you might be a part of that. I'm praying that God would bring somebody to your mind that you need to reach out to again. Hey, we're going to take communion as we end our service here. And, um, and so uh, you've got one of these little uh, packets that you came up, looks like creamer packet for your coffee. Obviously, we're doing this because of the situation we're in. Um, we don't normally do communion this way, but it's a good alternative here, and we can still uh, engage in the, in the Lord's Supper. And so if you pull that out, I wanted to help you a little bit with it. There's a clear plastic uh, part that you pull off first. Don't grab the purple. If you grab the purple and pull it off, you're just going to get the juice, which is only half of the communion meal. I want you to get all of it. So the little clear uh, strip, which is on top, you might need nails to get it, but, but that's what you pull off to get the wafer, all right? It's a little bit of bread, and then, uh, and then the juice is underneath. And uh, listen, it's not about what the elements we take. It's not about that, really. It's about what they represent. And so let me remind us of what it represents. Jesus had a meal with his disciples called the Last Supper, and he sat down with them, probably reclining around a table, and he took some bread. He broke it passed it around. He said, take and eat this. This represents my body that's going to be broken for you. Then he took a cup and he passed that around. He said, take a sip, take a drink from this cup. This represents my blood that's going to be poured out for you. And then after that meal, Jesus went to, uh, through the, the passion. He went through the trial, and uh, eventually uh, he was crucified on a cross. And what he said with those disciples came true in that he died a brutal, painful death on a cross. Now, he did that for a reason and a purpose. He did that to provide forgiveness, right? To, to take care of, to pay for, atone for the sins of the world. And so you and I have access to God, his salvation through the work of Jesus. The Bible says when we put our trust in him, that we enter from death to life, that we experience newness of life and salvation comes to us. And so this supper, Jesus said to continue, told his disciples, keep doing this until I come back. And so we continue to practice this sacred, sacred meal where we remember take a moment to remember and to thank God for what he's done for us. And so I want to encourage you to do that. Bible also teaches us to uh, examine our hearts and to make sure if there's any sin that we haven't confessed that we do that. Doesn't mean we got to be sinlessly perfect, but we're just confessing. We're keeping a good account with God. And so take a minute to do that. And we're going to sing a song. Uh, Ken's going to lead us. And then take uh, communion. Let's do that together. And so let me, let me pray for us. God, we just thank you for the work that you did for us. Thank you for your body, which was broken, your blood, which was shed, so that we can have salvation in you, so we can live this life connected to you and live for all eternity with you. We thank you for that. Father, we take a moment today to just worship you and to praise you and to celebrate what you've done for us. God, we want to lift up some of the folks in our church. We want to lift up Lynn Garvin, who's battling some health issues. Father, just watch over him, bring healing to his body. For Virginia Wilson, Father, who... Um, had to have uh, some surgery. Just pray for her continued recovery and healing. For Bev Gibson, who's got a health 
issue that she's battling, Father, just watch over her, bring healing to her body and victory. Michael McCabe, Father, who's struggling and battling, uh, Father, just continue to watch over him and bring comfort to him and Pat. God, we do thank you for the rain that you brought to us recently. We thank you for the, um, the grace and mercy that you pour out on us. Father, thank you for this moment where we can worship you and thank you. As we take communion, we just say thanks. We pray this in Jesus' name.